Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates and as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello, welcome to the Sibylline Podcast series. I'm Goyu, lead analyst of Asia Pacific. Join me today, we have Supriya Ravishankar, our South Asian analyst, and APA analyst, Adam Modachai. Together, we will discuss the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan and the potential political and security implications of a possible Taliban rule. So in April, US President Joe Biden announced his commitment to withdraw all US troops from Afghanistan by the 11th of September, 20 years after the terrorist attack, with NATO quickly following the suit. In the subsequent months, the Taliban made rapid territorial gains across the whole country in a decisive offensive, culminating in the capture of capital Kabul over the weekend. While the eventual fall of the civilian government had been foreseen, the speed of the Taliban's advance and the capitulation of the Afghan National Army has shocked the international community. In a press conference on Tuesday, the Taliban spokesperson made a bid for the group to gain political legitimacy and international recognition by pledging a raft of promises, including respect of women's rights within the framework of Islamic law, amnesty on individuals who fought against the Taliban and assisted foreign forces. However, many remain skeptical about the sincerity of these promises and have dismissed them as a PR campaign. Others are pondering what would the return of Taliban rule in Afghanistan mean for the country and the wider region? First of all, to start setting the context, what do you think will be some of the key features of a future Taliban government? How would you characterize the nature of their rule? Would it be very different from the period they ruled before? Thank you for your question. I do think that it will be a bit different than the previous government. In the press conference that you just mentioned, the spokesperson said that the government would be inclusive and representative. Well, yeah, it's difficult to see the veracity of that claim. But I do think that the Taliban is showing pragmatism and they're they're already negotiating with previous leaders, such as former President Karzai and Abdullah Abdullah, an important power broker. And we also see that uh, they mentioned that that women could potentially be involved. It would be interesting to see how they accommodate other Taliban leaders. When we think of the Taliban, we think of just a single organization, but it's actually quite a decentralized movement. And it'll be interesting to see how they can accommodate maybe other ambitious Taliban leaders into the government if they do that. But the main feature will be that it will be an Islamic country run by Sharia law. How moderate it will be from the previous government, again, is something only time will tell. But we can see that they are trying to avoid repeating previous mistakes. So they've asked bureaucrats to stay on and work on in government. They're trying to keep the economy going. They're trying to convince like Western powers that they're legitimate this way. And I think they're trying to be smart about it because the entire world is watching them. It's still preliminary to say exactly what will happen, but it will, it's likely that the, that the government would be more pragmatic than the previous one. Right, that's very interesting, Sophia. Aidan, from what you've seen, the other countries in the region, how are they viewing the latest development in Afghanistan and perhaps projecting what my uh, Taliban rule look like? In the region, there's, there's a mixed response, of course. 
on one hand, it increasingly became apparent that Taliban takeover of Afghanistan was becoming the, the more likely outcome, even if the speed of that was, was maybe a surprise. And, and I think we've seen that in the way some countries have prepared by opening channels of dialogue with the Taliban, most notably China, where Taliban officials visited the foreign minister last month. And that kind of indicated that Beijing, at least, was one, willing to work with the Taliban, and, and was two, preparing the groundwork to keep some sort of consistency in relations. And other countries will have to, to come to terms with it in their own way. That would be easier for some than others. Obviously, Pakistan and Islamabad, particularly the military, have, depending on who you uh, listen to, some significant relations already with the Taliban. And so we'll be able to set up a working relationship more easily than others, where politically it will be more difficult. And of course, uh, Delhi is prime candidate for having to answer some difficult questions in the near future about that particular question soon. The Taliban will be aware that most countries in the region, more than anything, particularly neighboring countries, will be seeking stability and know that despite some uh, reservations about how they may govern the country, if they can achieve that sort of domestic stability that doesn't spill over into their neighboring countries, that it would be easier for them to find that acceptance that they're looking for. Okay. Now, if we look back to the past few months, ever since U.S. announcement of troop withdrawal, and I set the timeline to this, Taliban has been advancing, taking provinces and cities one by one, one after the other. So how were the Taliban able to gain such rapidly amid the, the troop withdrawal by the U.S. and NATO? What went wrong for the Afghan government and the Afghan forces? Perhaps, you know, we start with you, Supriya, on this one. So I would say three key reasons lie behind this. The first is that Initially, when, when Afghan forces and NATO and American forces worked together, they would work in sync with each other. So when U.S. and NATO forces left, they initially collapsed in terms of their modus operandi because they had no one to really lead from the front the way that they, they needed them to be. The second reason is because the Afghan government, they used to, they positioned their military in important checkpoints, but they were scattered across the country. So this helped Ghani actually because it, it gave the political image that he had, he was, a, a, he was across Taliban. So he had more control over the territory. But what that actually did was, is that it dispersed units across the country. So they could mutually reinforce each other. And the Taliban were able to isolate these checkpoints and disrupt operational lines. And also that way, also lines of communication. So this just like debilitated the Afghan forces who were already like more, which is the third reason they were more in terms of morale. They were, they felt very weakened because Taliban would post images online and use social medias of them capturing weapons and different territories. And obviously this would, this would make them feel like they were fighting a lost battle. So I would say these are the three core reasons why they were able to gain ground so rapidly. Right. Anything for you to add, Aidan? Uh, yeah, I would agree with anything, everything Supriya just said and, and add that the Ghani-led government was, was highly ineffectual in, in many levels. I think that in the end led to a lack of, I guess, desire to fight what could have been obviously a very damaging conflict for anyone taking part. And as the Taliban gained momentum, there was a lack of desire to put themselves in a position where 
where they where the individuals and on an operational level would be at obviously a very high risk and the more Taliban gamed it the more it almost seemed inevitable and I think while it maybe came to a surprise even to the Taliban how little resistance they met yeah it also showed how effective some of their propaganda and and which was when it came to delegitimizing the Afghan government and how they pushed the fact that it was highly corrupt and from throughout the system and how it really took away that support from them. Even if it didn't give all that support to the Taliban, the Ghani government itself uh, didn't have the support necessary to rally the security forces to really put their neck on the line, particularly when they, they, that international support that, that was so crucial, as Supriya mentioned, was then so suddenly withdrawn. Right. So it seems to me that many in Western political and military establishment has a woefully underestimated Taliban's ability to gain territories and their capabilities, but perhaps also overestimated the Afghan National Defense Forces' resilience. So I guess a combination of both uh, led to the current situation of a Taliban takeover so quickly. So just moving on, looking at the wider region, uh, perhaps start with you on this one, Aiden. What are the security and business implications of a Taliban rule, specifically for South Asia, perhaps, and which industries or organizations in particular could face enhanced risks? At the moment, it's difficult to pinpoint exactly how this change will, will impact the operating environment. And that volatility and uncertainty will be an additional to Darren. But on the same note, of course, Afghanistan prior to Taliban takeover was a domestic economy and a domestic operational environment that was already very high risk. And few firms and NGOs and media outlets, they will obviously approach the environment already with a high deal of caution. Um, that is going to be heightened, at least in the short term, until a clearer picture of what a Taliban Afghanistan will look like. If a firm believed that Afghanistan before was too high of a risk to uh, risk setting up operations or with or to set up operations in, they certainly aren't going to start now. So we're, we're going to have a wait and see approach there. Other than that, the immediate business implications that come to mind are, of course, uh, the aviation industry, whether it will be safe to fly in across now Taliban controlled airspace. That might take a, a little bit of time to navigate, as well as that, of course, NGOs, which had a presence there before and had a presence knowing that there was a certain level of security provided by the presence of US and NATO troops, but which helped mitigate the, the risks, at least partially. Now that there's no longer there, NGOs may, may struggle or may not be willing anymore to be based there. Companies that rely on supply chains that run through Afghanistan's it does hold a, an area which is, is a choke point in, in a way uh, when it comes to trade. It's landlocked country, of course, but it, it does have routes to seaports, including borders which connect Central Asia with Pakistan and the ports there. So companies which utilize these routes would have to, again, evaluate their position and how that affects them. From a security point of view, again, very unclear. It's, it depends on stability the Taliban and can really sustain how much uh, resistance they will face domestically, and as well as that, how much overspill there will be. While Pakistan does have a working relationship, or Islamabad and, and the military, which is so important in Pakistan, has a, a working relationship with uh, the Taliban there. 
there will be fears by those in, in Islamabad about the effect of so many refugees coming across the border, how that will affect the stability of the, the border regions, which has always been a problem, even prior to recent events. And as well as that, the Pakistani Taliban or the TTP may also gain from these developments. They may find a bigger pool of people to to recruit from while they've already been re-establishing or attempting to re-establish themselves in those border regions of Pakistan, providing a challenge for security forces, which really had quite successfully cracked down on them since 2015, improving the security environment in those parts of Pakistan. It's difficult to, to say exactly how the, the regional security and business environment will change, but high levels of uncertainty are definitely, definitely in, inevitable. I will certainly go along with that. So, Supriya, I mean, what about India? Some say India has been put in a very awkward position by the uh, quick takeover of uh, Taliban in Afghanistan. What's your view on that? Yeah, definitely this Taliban takeover has put India in a catch-22 situation because under the previous government, under the Ghani government, the Modi Modi government and the the Ghani government actually had quite favorable relations and much to Pakistan's fear because I think Pakistan's biggest fear would be to be encircled by India to the east and then a pro-India-Afghan government to the west and the north. But even in terms of trade, like India and Afghanistan had bilateral relations worth 1.4 billion. And there was a lot of exports and imports going by with, with Afghans exporting dry fruits and India importing, uh, exporting consumable goods. So there was there was a lot of economic activity, which will definitely now be at the backseat with all this uncertainty over the closure of air routes and, of course, the nature of the government, the government itself. But I think India, as of now, will really probably just play its cards right by seeing what other countries in the region are doing. And I think the priority right now would just be to open a line of communication with the Taliban and then see how that goes going forward. Because even when the people working in the Indian embassy had to be evacuated from Kabul, India ultimately negotiated with the Taliban, which is why the people could even come out in the first place. So there is already a line of communication established there. But whether that communication would be turned into an all-out recognition of the Taliban, I think it's still preliminary to tell. But India will definitely have to play its cards right going forward. Yeah, fascinating. It looks like there's going to be a lot of uncertainties that are leading to countries watching each other quite carefully and deciding what to do next. So finally, looking ahead, given the, the ongoing crisis, what are the potential development, both in the short and long term, that the international community is likely to face as a result of uh, the Taliban takeover? Maybe starting with you, Supriya, on this one? Yeah, I think, uh, as Aidan mentioned, the refugee crisis is probably the most pertinent issue going forward, especially for countries like Iran and uh, Pakistan, both in the short and the long term. But also there's this, uh, there's the idea that other groups can now see the Taliban success story and that could lead to ra- rather more radicalization within groups like the ISIS in terms of recruits who, are, who probably are frustrated by what could essentially be seen as a, as a Western abandonment by the US and the NATO forces. And also you can also see that in Europe, there are already countries like Austria and Switzerland that are not really taking in refugees. And there's always the fear that right-wing conservative governments could use this as an opportunity to whip up public sentiment against refugees and tighten borders, which will obviously have an implication on business operations. So in the long term, that is also something that we should keep an eye out for. Right. Anything for you to add, Ada? 
I would agree with Supriya. The main concerns in the international community will certainly be the refugee crisis, which might take a little bit of time to reach uh, Europe, but will eventually get there. And there will be fears of a repeat of the crisis in 2015 and uh, the internal disputes within Europe that, that it caused, well as, as the domestic tensions, as Supriya alluded to, as well as the, the terrorism, uh, the potential for it to become or a, a rallying call for other, other groups that may build off that success. But given that the Taliban eventually taken over Afghanistan was certainly an outcome that the Washington considered before they actually um, decided to withdraw fully. I think they are at least uh, confident that they think they can contain that threat of, of terrorism, at least to themselves. Whether that comes to fruition, of course, is, is another, another question. But I believe that they are at least confident that increased intelligence capabilities compared to previously in 9-11 can help mitigate that threat in the long term. A lot to be seen. It's a, it's a developing situation and there's a lot of uncertainty. Thank you very much, you two. Joining me now is Alex Lord, Europe and Euro-Asia analyst. Alex, apart from the unfolding crisis in Afghanistan, what other issues and events are we watching for the next week? Thank you, Go. So amongst the most notable events to watch in the coming weeks will be two major Extinction Rebellion campaigns. The first, which the group has dubbed Nordic Rebellion, will take place between the 21st and the 29th of August in Oslo, Norway. The group intends the campaign to be the largest mass action week in Scandinavian history, and so significant disruption to central Oslo is likely, as are targeted direct actions against the oil and gas sector, which the group has singled out as the target of the campaign. Then from the 23rd of August, XR are holding their impossible rebellion in London with the campaign launching with a protest in Trafalgar Square from 10am local time. The group plans to hold various protests and direct actions and online campaigns right across the UK for a period of two weeks after that. And now that COVID-19 restrictions have been lifted, we can expect some more traditional road blocking stunts that could cause significant travel disruption across the city. With the UK set to host the upcoming COP26 climate summit in Glasgow this November, we can definitely see next week's campaigns as a prelude to more mass action later in the year, particularly on the back of the publication of the International Panel on Climate Change's report earlier this month. Further afield in the US, an Antifa protest is planned at Salmon Springs Fountain in Portland on the 22nd August in a bid to prevent a right-wing rally from taking place. However, if the two protests clash, there could be localised violence, underpinning the enduring tensions that continue to sustain domestic unrest risks in that city. And that's about it for this week. As ever, if any of these or any other events are of particular interest to you or your organisation, then please don't hesitate to contact us at info at Thank you very much.